Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for being here today. And um, I'm so, I so love the partners that First Baptist Church has, literally around the world, um, doing the work of the gospel. And hey, how about that Kevin Reiser? I tell you what, I am thankful this guy is here. Uh, he's doing an amazing job. There's so much happening at this church right now that hasn't even come to the surface yet that Kevin's involved in. And uh, he's no doubt has ears that are still ringing from last night, but he's here today. Thanks, Kevin, for everything that you're doing. I want you to imagine for a moment a group of people that live in the wilderness along a canal. And that canal was essential for life among these people who lived in the wilderness because that canal was responsible for bringing them water and bringing them life. They used it for irrigation so they could grow things, so they could live at this place they were staying at out in the wilderness. Great sacrifices were made to build this canal. Many died while it was being built. But then something happened. It became dry one day for no clear reason. And while the walls was, are, are still there, uh, there's nothing that can give life to anybody. And this is where the story gets even more strange. Though it doesn't have water going through it, though it's no longer bringing life, people are still maintaining it. People are still defending it as though it were essential for their living. They continue to name their children after its architects and its engineers, even though now it's only like this historic thing that belongs in a museum. Something that was meant to convey water and life has now become an end instead of a means. People tell stories about it, how they used to drink from it. The older people treasure the stories the most. The younger ones have to be initiated deliberately by the older people to appreciate it. But each generation seems to lose a fraction of the true vision of the canal as time goes on. And now no one really has a memory of even what water looks like. This was a warning that was given by a man named Karl Barth after World War I to the Swiss and German churches because he saw something happening there. They built beautiful, wonderful buildings. They had great traditions. They loved what they considered to be the church, but he saw something that was missing, something that could mean the end of the church. And many people who have studied the church in Europe believe that Karl Barth hit it right on the nose. Because when people are working very hard to accomplish something, a building, a program, setting up a holiday tradition, even theological study, it can lead to a dryness. And just like that land without water, it can lead to a spiritual sickness. Because you see, right now, in seminaries and divinity schools all across the United States of America, they are populated with people who have never put their faith in Jesus Christ. Right now, this morning, occupying pulpits, there are men and women who have never put their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that leads to a sickness across the land. What I want to talk about this morning is how do I treat spiritual sickness? How do you treat a condition that comes whenever people have become so enraptured by things apart from the gospel 
that they lost sight of what the gospel itself brings in terms of spiritual life and vitality. The, the passage I want to look at this morning comes from John chapter 5, where Jesus is addressing people who have done just that. They have completely lost sight of why they do what they do, and what was intended to be a means has become an end in and of itself. So be in John chapter 5, I'll read verses 31 through 47. John chapter 5, verses 31 through 47. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But... The testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? You may be seated. We're getting to a point now in the book of John where Jesus is beginning to be persecuted. There are those who would seek to kill him because he's making fantastic what they would consider to be blasphemous claims. That Jesus himself is claiming to be the Son of God. And for the Jew living at that time, they knew exactly what he was saying. He was claiming to be equal with God himself, and they had a problem with that. But Christ came to give them hope. One definition of hope I mentioned last week, if anxiety is the anticipation of terror, then hope is the anticipation of joy. Jesus came to be a living hope to even these people right now who he's addressing, these Jews who are antagonizing him. And now things have taken a sharp turn. And he's pointing out to them that they have a condition. They have a spiritual sickness that lies upon them. And this same spiritual sickness can find its way into our lives as well. What I want to talk about this morning is, first, what do spiritually sick people value? We'll talk about the three values of spiritually sick people. Then finally, how do I treat the sickness? So let's start here, where we left off last week. 
Christ continues to go through this trial, he's lovingly and patiently explaining to these men antagonizing him about who he is, the one, the one seeking to take his life. And he testifies first about addressing the testimony of John the Baptist. So he points out, look, if I'm the only one testifying about me, I get why you wouldn't believe me. But he said the issue is I'm not. I'm not the only one testifying to who I am. He says the Father in heaven is the one confirming that I am who I say I am. He explains that um, the witness of the Father, he said it may not be acceptable to you. As a matter of fact, he said it may not be even recognized by you, but it's enough for me, says Christ. He knows that this witness, his father, is true. And that's what brings conviction to him. But he knew that these Jews making accusations against him, they weren't getting that. They weren't understanding that the father in heaven himself is testifying as to who his son is. So then he brings up another testimony, another person testifying about him. He's referring to John the Baptist when he's talking about John here. What did John have to say about Jesus? Well, he said that he's the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. He's the Messiah. He's the one that you have been waiting on. He's the one spoken about of, uh, spoken of in the Old Testament. He's going to come and testify to who Christ is. He's going to be the herald of Christ. Then Jesus makes it more clear in verse 34 what he'd already been saying. He said, I do not accept human testimony, but I say this so that you may be saved. Now, what, is, what does that mean? See, Christ is perfectly content with what the Father has, has said about him. And he's saying all through the Old Testament, all the prophets were speaking about me, that I was to come and what I was to do. And he says, and the miracles that I'm doing, the culmination of all these things is, is the Father's testimony to who I am. But he said, I know you need a human witness. You need a human testimony. You need someone here to testify about who I am. And he said, that's the work of John the Baptist. And the text said he was like a lamp burning for a little while to illuminate to people who Jesus was. By the way, he wasn't the only one writing and talking about John the Baptist. If you go back and look at a historian, a Roman historian named Josephus, he mentions in his writings about how this man named John the Baptist was creating all this excitement about Jesus. Jesus then turns his attention back to the testimony of his father. And he says it's far greater than that of anybody else. And he emphasizes the work he's doing is of God himself. And the father and son relationship testify to who Jesus is. But then we see this conversation. It takes an uncomfortable turn. In verses 37 and 38. Because Jesus is now is going to step into territory that these men were not necessarily anticipating him doing. And he turns his attention to them, his accusers. And he's made this strong connection between he and the Father that to deny one is to deny, to deny the other. And then in verse 37, he says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. And again, the culmination of the prophecies, the prophetic events, the voice of the Father that was spoken during the time of Christ's baptism. All of that testifies to who he is. But then look at what Jesus says. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not, you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Well, now it's getting heavy. 
He's saying to them, you are missing all of it. Why? It's because of their unbelief. Their unwillingness to believe that Jesus is who he says he was. He says, if you believed what you read in the Old Testament, you would believe that I am who I say that I am. He's saying, you're not even believing what you profess to believe in the Old Testament. He charges them further in verses 38 through 40. They think because they study the Bible, because they know the Bible, that they have eternal life. See, Jesus understood what the the rabbis thought and what they believed. As a matter of fact, in addition to the Old Testament, there was something else written called the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was a collection of Jewish writings. And in the Mishnah, the rabbis would uh, reveal, the teachers of the law revealed what their thoughts were in addition to what the Bible said. And they said this, He who has acquired the words of the law has acquired for himself the life of the world to come. And then again, another citation, Great is the law, for it gives to those who practice it life in this world and, and this is the key, and in the world to come. This was something called the sayings of the fathers. And this is what they believed. And what Jesus is saying is that if you were such a quote-unquote scholar of God's word, you would never have missed me. That I'm the one who gives eternal life. And the scriptures are there to point to me. Look at verse 40. But he says, you are not willing to come to me so that you may have life. See, this is our first symptom of spiritual sickness. Spiritually sick people value scripture over the Savior. They value the scriptures over the Savior. Now, this is kind of scary. Because what it's saying is you can study the Bible and you can miss Jesus. You can study the Bible. As a matter of fact, I had a friend that ran a a ministry back in Dallas, Texas, and he worked with a lot of uh, students who were working on uh, master's degrees at Southern Methodist, and many of them had, had attended Ivy League schools. He talked to one guy who said he had learned Greek just so he could read the New Testament in his own original language, but he was not a believer in Christ. And Jesus is warning them, you cannot gain eternal life through your efforts in studying the Bible. The study of the Bible is not an end in itself. Now, when he's talking about the Scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. That's what the Jews would have been studying. At the time of Christ, those were the Scriptures, but they were intended to point to Christ. See, the law was this babysitter there for a time to show people that you're not going to be able to keep this. You are going to need a Savior. The intent of the law was to show people you cannot live perfectly. But people can study the scriptures and still miss the Savior. As a matter of fact, there was a man, uh, he's the director of the Institute of Christian Apologetics at Trinity Western. His name's Paul Chamberlain. He said this, he said, There is a new and well-informed kind of skeptic today. One who in the past worshipped alongside the rest of us. Some, in fact, were leaders in the Christian community. Pastors, professors, theologians, and people preparing for ministry. He said they are now some of Christianity's most adamant and well-informed critics. And many are actively encouraging other Christians to follow them out. But see, I'm going to say that there's even a scarier scenario that's going on. Because there's many today that don't step away from the church. 
who continue leading in the church, even though they have no belief in the gospel whatsoever. As a matter of fact, there are PhDs who write commentaries on the Bible who are not Christians. They continue to preach a false gospel, many from pulpits on Sunday mornings. So this first symptom of spiritual sickness is valuing, valuing the scripture over Christ himself. Then we get to verses 41 through 44, and Jesus explains to them that, that he would not stoop to become the kind of Messiah that they were wanting. <clears throat> Look at verses 41 and 42. I do not accept praise from people, but I know you that you do not have the love of God within you. So what's he saying here? Jesus isn't susceptible to praise from men. Um, for, for him, praise from God is, is enough, but the behavior of his critics indicates that the way they act the way they do, the reason they act the way they do, is because they're more interested in praise from each other than they are praise from God. And Jesus knew them well, but they didn't know him. And he's pointing out love for God was not motivating to them like it was to him. So these Jews, then they've crafted this religion that suited them. It's their own sort of self-satisfying, it's a good old boy religion. And they're, they're patting each other on the back for doing such a good job. They didn't accept the Christ when he came. They didn't believe he came from the Father. And according to verse 43, they're opening themselves up to false messiahs. See, here's the real problem. It's not like people just believe in nothing. The problem is when people reject the truth, they'll believe in what is false. These Jews are accepting false messiahs. And people today, we accept counterfeit gods and religions, even counterfeit meanings of life, because people need something to live for. Then Jesus draws a conclusion about these people in verse 44. He says, how can you believe if you accept praise from one another and don't seek the praise that comes from the only God? His critics could not believe in him because they preferred the praise of men to the praise of God. They consistently chose what was popular over what was true. And in contrast, Jesus lived solely for the glory of God. He didn't pander to the praise of people. He could not perform his mission if he was concerned about what men thought about him. That's the second symptom. Spiritually sick people value man's praise over God's praise. And it's so easy for us to seek the praise of another. It can be, uh, as a matter of fact, there's a, a condition called approval addiction out there who constantly need the approval of somebody else. And, and that stems from a deep fear that most of us have. Actually, most of us, at some point, have feared rejection of others. It's one of the things that keeps people from coming in the doors of a church, is a fear of people, a fear of people rejecting them. As a matter of fact, this has driven people to do all kinds of things, for, and they need to be significant. Um, some really insightful writers, for example, one, uh, Arthur Miller, he was a, a playwright, uh, they understand this angst and dysfunction, of this fear of not being accepted. Arthur Miller wrote the, the play Death of a Salesman. And he stopped believing in God as a teenager, but decades later he said this. 
He said, I feel like I've carried around this sense of judgment. I could not escape it. I still felt like I needed to prove myself to others, to have somebody tell me I was okay, that I was acceptable, that I was approved of. You see, he had accepted the God of Christianity with a lowercase g God of audience approval. He was still looking for somebody to tell, me he, to tell him he was accepted and that he was important, that he wasn't under judgment, but he never quite found it. And then the singer, Madonna, in an interview with Vanity Fair, said something that was incredibly, I believe, transparent. She said, all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. She said, my drive in life from this horrible fear of being mediocre, and it's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. You see that? It's not just about getting there. You've got to stay there. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. See, you can get caught in this performance trap, that if I don't meet certain standards, then I have no right to accept the praise of someone else and find meaning in that. And it's a sign of this spiritual sickness, this craving for the praise of men. I am not immune. And, but I know when I start living for the praise of somebody to come up and say, Chad, great sermon, Chad, that when it doesn't happen, it's going to send me down into despair. Look out for seeking the praise of men. And then finally, let's look at this last section. Because these Jews, they find themselves now in the, in the last part of chapter 5 with a very strange accuser. Uh, Jesus explains in these last verses of chapter 5 that the strongest indictment against them, he said it's not going to come from himself. He said it's going to come from Moses. What, I mean, what does that mean? So you've got to think about who Moses was to the Jews. Moses, remember, he carried the Ten Commandments down from the top of the mountain. And that was just the first ten. Because there's going to be hundreds of laws that are going to come after that. If you go through the book of Leviticus, and you can stay awake. You go through the book of Deuteronomy, that's the second giving of the law. Trying again to stay awake. There's tons of laws that Moses was given. But see, Moses never taught that the law was an end in itself. He pointed to people, he said... There was going to be a prophet coming. If you look back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, this is what Moses said. I will, uh, speaking, thus saith the Lord, speaking on behalf of God, I will raise up a prophet like you for them from among their fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them whatever I command. I will personally hold responsible anyone who then pays no attention to the words that the prophet speaks in my name. That's why Jesus said, look, if you were paying attention to the Old Testament, you would see me there. Don't tell me you study it and, and, and you're missing me. Because if you're missing me, you're missing the entire Old Testament. They refused to do this. They, these Jews broke the law that Moses had urged them to follow. Then look at verse 46. If you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. You can't make it any more clear than that. The Jews placed their hope in the law, but the law was fulfilled by Christ. If you look at Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus was going to do it perfectly. That's what he means by fulfilling the law. I'm going to live it out as though no one has, because no one but God himself could do it perfectly. I was showing you all that you are not God, and you can't save yourselves. But the Jews are trying by their own righteousness to achieve a reconciliation to God. They want to redeem themselves. So what do they do? This is number three. They value rules over redemption. They need to keep the rules to stay in God's good graces instead of just accepting their sinners and, and accepting this grace that God provides that they can be redeemed. And most of us fall into this trap at some point. <clears throat> We're accustomed to measured achievement, grades, pay scales, it's very hard for us to accept the grace of God. So how do we treat this sickness? Just three ways. First of all, study Scripture not as an end in itself, but when you dig into the Word of God, do it so the end result is that you will love God more, and as a result of that, you will love people more. Um, I, you know, we were warned, I'll never forget, we were warned whenever... We started seminary. They're going to say, now look, you are going to be tempted to treat this like it's just another book on your shelf that you're going to study. And they were right. You can, you can fall into that trap. But it doesn't have to be that way. If when you dig into the Word of God, you're doing it not just to gain knowledge, but knowledge that leads you to the end that you will gain a deeper appreciation of what Christ has done, His fulfillment of the Word of God, your predicament of being in sin, you've got those examples all through the Bible, and your need to be saved from it. So see, God's scriptures are much more than just a book. You know, I remember when my wife and I, when we first, I mean, it took me two years to convince this woman to go out with me. She was very icy. She's not in here, so I can talk about her. You don't, don't tell her. So it took forever, and finally we started corresponding. And man, I will never forget when I'd be sitting there at work and that, e that inbox, we get that little blue notification. One, you know what I'm talking about, in parentheses. And then I would see the name Melissa. Her name's Melissa Doxy at the time. Her name would pop up. And I, at first I'd get so excited I couldn't even read. I had to just take a break. Oh, she sent me a name. Okay. <laughs> then I would open it up. And I couldn't even think straight. I mean, I mean they, they actually call it, it's called juiced brain when you're at this stage, the Twitter-pated stage of romance. And I would read it, and then I'd take a walk. Then I'd come back, and I'd sit down, and I would read it again. Because we were falling in love with each other. You see, the Scriptures are God's letter to us, telling us how much, this is how much I love you. I'm going to write to you and tell you that I'm going to have my own son sacrificed for you so that when you read this, you'll love me more because I'm telling you what I've done for you because I love you first. So when you study the Bible, don't just make Bible study an end in itself. As a result of studying the Scriptures, you should love God more. And when this relationship is right, then this relationship can get so much easier. 
You can forgive because you're forgiven. You don't have to punish people who have done wrong things to you. You don't have to give your spouse the silent treatment anymore because of what he did for you. No one has ever sacrificed more than Christ to show us how much that they've loved us. Look for evidences of God's love when you study the Bible. And then secondly, listen to this, hear men, but heed God. Okay? So hear men. You know, people are going to say nice things to you. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. But don't take that in like you would take something from God himself. That was a mistake these Pharisees were making. So powerful in their life was the words of other men that it was drowning out what it was God was saying to them. And I'm trying to get to that place. I'm trying to get to that place where I need less and less from people. And it's by knowing just how much more deeply God loves me. Not only that, but he knows me better than anybody else. He really knows me in every thought. I mean, it's terrifying. And he loves me anyway. I believe the degree to which we can do this will also determine the degree to which we can really experience peace and joy in our own lives. That the words of God mean more to us than the words of, of men and women. That we don't have to get discouraged and depressed when we're rejected by somebody because we're accepted fully by God. And then finally, believe right and act right. Instead of, instead of getting waylaid by the rules, trust by faith that you are redeemed. Because, see, when we believe rightly about God and what he's done, then we will act rightly. That's why we always start with right belief. You know, there's this, this fancy phrase I kick around sometimes that orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Orthodoxy just means right teaching. If you're filling your head with right teaching and it leads to right belief, you will begin to act rightly. And you'll begin to feel rightly. And you'll do rightly. And you'll treat others rightly. This starts with right belief. That we have this redemption that is given to us, that keeping the rules is not about getting in right standing with God. It's about loving God and then keeping the rules. Because we love Him. We want to obey Him. But having a point system where we're feeling guilty for doing this or that, feeling superior or, or inferior to somebody else, that's when we have to believe what God said about us. I love what McGee says. This is Robert McGee in his book, The Search for Significance. This, I put this on Facebook this morning if you're looking for it. He just said, confess your sins, worship God, and get on with your life. You can experience the mercy of God no matter what you've been through, no matter what you've done. So putting this all together, treat spiritual sickness by learning more to love God and others more. Treat spiritual sickness by learning more to love God more and to love others more. I want to close with this, um, this story. You can actually you can see this uh, video of these men from Ivory Coast. If you go to YouTube and you search Ivory Coast chocolate, you'll find a video of some men. They're, they're cocoa farmers, and they farm these cocoa beans. And they live in poverty, and they work extremely hard to get all these beans. And um, it, it, as it turns out, they have never tasted chocolate. As a matter of fact, they didn't even know what the beans were for. And so somebody 
captures on video the moment they discover chocolate. And a man sits there, and he said he thought chocolate was to make wine or something, and he gives him this chocolate bar, and he unwraps it, and he tastes a bite, and he gets this huge smile on his face. And he said, oh, this is delicious. And he only eats one little bar of it. And he takes that, and he runs to the middle of the village, and he starts handing out to the other people. And he said, you've got to taste this. And then they go out into the fields, they, and they sit down with all those men, and they start eating this. They said they had no idea this is what chocolate was for, or what the cocoa beans were for. And they're thrilled, and they can't keep it to themselves. And it's this sweet illustration of how we can be so close to something wonderful like the gospel, handling it all the time, but never tasting or benefiting from its end result. Salvation and spiritual health and joy. We can produce without tasting or feed others without being nourished ourselves. So take it in. Take it in. Enjoy it. Let's not be a church that relishes tradition over the joy of the gospel itself. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we're more thankful for what it tells us about you. And I pray, God, that we would receive the message that, that we would not become dry, that we would not be caught up in other little gods that can become so important and noisy in our lives that we miss the sweetness of you and the love you have for us and that love that can be spread out to others. Help us to remember, Lord Jesus, what you've done for us. It's your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.